So Romans uh, chapter uh, 30. Chapter 30. Are you there yet? <laughs> Romans chapter 3. Uh, I, I misspoke. Romans 3 verse 21. Let's look at God's word. 321. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the word of our Lord. Well, if we compare this passage with the passage last week, I uh, want you to entertain the notion that what Paul has done last week is he has left us in a rather fearful position, almost like uh, a scene from a movie when a car is sliding and it's about to go over a cliff and it just gets right to the very, very edge and it it wobbles uh, just a bit. And it seems to me that when we look here at Romans 3.21, Uh, We're actually looking for a solution to that problem of a car perilously uh, tipping back and forth on a cliff. See, Romans 3 verse 20 says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. No human being. There's nothing that I can do to earn God's favor. That's where Paul has taken us up to this point. And not only that, this is, this is true for Jewish people who have been uh, formally uh, given the law of God, not only at Mount Sinai, but even before Mount Sinai through God's communication uh, ever since Adam and Eve. It's true for them. By works of the law, no human being will be justified. But it's also true for someone like me, a Gentile. Because God's law is uh, by his will written on my heart. I I know uh, fundamentally the difference between good and bad because it's written upon my created state. My conscience uh, bears witness. My uh, conflicting thoughts occasionally accuse me, occasionally excuse me. Uh, This is what Paul has already taught in Romans 2 verses 14 through 15. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. And not only that, in terms of uh, where Paul has brought us to this morning, if the whole world is accountable to God's scrutiny, which it is because he's created the whole world, then the whole world will be condemned. Paul has said nobody's excused. I mean, this is what Paul says in Romans 3.19, but the entire Old Testament seethes with passages like this. In Romans 3, verses 10 through 18, uh, Paul cites at least seven examples from the Old Testament that prove that no matter how hard uh, they have tried, no one has been able to make themselves righteous before God. Not only King David, not only Solomon, not only Isaiah, and not even me. And really... Paul's just being brutally honest with us, isn't he? 
He's telling us what is plainly taught in Scripture. One uh, Puritan, Thomas Watson, says that sin must first be seen before it can be wept for. And this is what Paul is showing us. And he brings us to that precipice, the tipping car, the weeping eyes. The truth of the matter is we need to hear this. We need to hear this. One of the great beauties of Christianity is that it is utterly honest. It tells us exactly who we are. The good, the bad, the otherwise. Wendell Berry said that there's nothing more absurd than millions of people who wish to live in luxury and idleness and want nothing more than to be slender and good looking. Wow. If we don't know that we're sinners, is that where we'll end up? Wishing to live in complete idleness, our highest expectation to be slender and good-looking? Wendell Berry has a gift for a turn of phrase. We actually do live absurd lives if we neglect our accountability before God. We actually live lives that, whatever we call it, happy or sad, even conflicted, whatever we live, we live absurd lives if we neglect our accountability before God. And what happens in this passage is that Paul actually brings God closer to us. If one thinks of what Paul has done from Romans 1.1 up to Romans 3.20, he has painted a very dangerous picture. No one can stand before this God, and you will be held accountable. And in our passage this morning... Paul doesn't take God further away from us to keep us safe from this dangerous situation. Paul does the opposite. Paul actually brings God even closer to us. In Romans 3.21, he talks about God being made manifest, real, uh, revealed clearly. And then in Romans 3.25 and Romans 3.26, God is showing himself, Paul says. And so there is an excitability in the air, a tension in the air. Paul has told us that we cannot endure the judgment of God. And here he comes. We need to feel that tension when we begin at Romans 3.21. The theme of the passage this morning is this, is that God does come close to us, but he comes close to us in a saving way only in the work of Jesus. He does come close to us. But the only way he comes close to us in a saving way is in the work of Jesus. Now there's a few phrases in the opening verse that are very important to us. There's three, in fact. The truth of the matter is that this is some fairly deep theology. But I want you to notice some very small things that may have escaped your notice. Three little phrases that put us on the correct footing. And the first phrase is two simple words, short words in the Greek, but now. But now. But now. Paul's described to us a perilous uh, picture. But now. There's a change. Something is different now. Uh, Me, as I I have read Romans, I I, I have read about an impending condemnation for the entire world, including me, and I absolutely deserve it. But now. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones famously said that there are no more wonderful words in the whole of Scripture than these two words, but now. You see, there's something now in the present that's different. Well, it's not entirely new because Paul says that the law and the prophets bear witness uh, to it. Uh, the Old Testament uh, knows about this. That's what the phrase, the law and the prophets, refers to. The Old Testament knows something about this, something about what Paul is about to say more on. In Romans chapter 4, he's going to say that uh, Abraham and David, they did know this for sure, understood the gospel. But in this age, in this age of the gospel, the period after the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, God is manifesting himself with a new clarity. I want you to listen to something that Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says this, commenting upon the Old Testament saints. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Isn't that a lovely picture? The prophets... They searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Thoughtful prophets, aided by the Holy Spirit, inquiring about the predicted sufferings of Christ and his subsequent glories. But now, but now, We see that clearly in the gospel. We see that clearly in the teaching and ministry of Jesus. We see that clearly in the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. Paul is going to argue that we see that clearly in the very work of Jesus. But now, how exciting is that phrase. The second phrase is this. Uh, The phrase uh, is simply, apart from the law. Apart from the law. You know, Paul has really been talking about the law ever since Romans 1, verse 17. Right after the thematic statement for all of Romans, Paul says this. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then in chapter, in two, or in two and a half chapters, Paul has been saying what he says right before us in 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 is in many ways a summary of two and a half chapters of Romans. But this phrase, apart from the law, well, if all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, then that means that No attachment to human performance is ever going to earn our favor before God. No attachment to human performance is going to earn God's attention. God is not impressed with human performance. That's what Paul's been telling us. But in Romans 3.21, Paul says that there is a possibility to come to God apart from law. I mean, literally... That phrase, apart from law, means uh, the law is not needed, uh, so says uh, one uh, commentator. Apart from human performance. Now, in these two phrases, but now, and then that phrase, apart from law, or apart from human performance, do you 
Do you see the sun beginning to rise? Do you begin to sniff out that there might be some hope after all? Paul is building us up to this point. But now, and apart from human performance, which Paul has already said we failed at. And then here's the third phrase that really, really kind of uh, 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 enfolds itself upon the second phrase. The third phrase is this. If apart from the law refers to uh, apart from any human performance, the righteousness of God takes on a new cast. The righteousness of God actually refers to God's performance. If man's performance can do nothing, I wonder what God's performance can do. Now this phrase here, righteousness of God, you know, it's not about God's character of righteousness. It's not about uh, the attribute of righteousness in God. It's actually about the performance of God. Well, theologians don't say that. They say the work of God. But the performance of man has proven to be futile. Over and over again, Paul has told us that. But now, you see what he's doing. But now, I just use the phrase, there is a way to come close to God apart from that human performance. It's the righteousness of God that makes that possible. It's the performance of God, the work of God. And not just any performance. It's about his performance of salvation, It's how God deals with our own futile performance. And so now, against all expectations, God's work is visible. And in God's work, there is the ability to, as Romans 3.20 hints at, be justified in his sight. You see, God's revealing his work in contrast to our work. So much of Romans has described to us our work and how pathetic and useless it is. And now Paul says it's time for us to consider God's work. Some of you may know the name Stephen Wolfram. He's a a famous uh, mathematician and entrepreneur. He's pretty important to people who uh, follow the history of the internet. He wrote a small book about uh, mathematicians. You know that Uh, My my background gives me no skills and abilities whatsoever to understand almost anything about math. But this book is intriguing because uh, one mathematician looks back at a mathematician from the 18th century named Gottfried Leibniz. And Gottfried Leibniz worked on, uh, he was a philosopher, Uh, he worked on uh, mathematical notation. There are actually mathematical notations that exist uh, because of the work of Leibniz. And so Stephen Wolfram is looking back and he's, uh, he's uh, commenting on uh, the aspects of this famous mathematician's life. And this mathematician had a very unique hobby, and that hobby was to uh, build a calculator. Pascal had uh, built one, and he traveled, and he looked at Pascal's calculator. That calculator could add and subtract, but Leibniz, uh, he wanted to make a calculator that could not only add and subtract, but could also uh, multiply and divide. And so uh, Stephen Wolfram goes uh, to uh, the birthplace of Leibniz, and he, and he begins to root around uh, archives of his uh, papers, uh, and he learned an awful lot about this infatuation that Leibniz had with making a calculator. Uh, 
by Wolfram's uh, estimation, uh, this man spent uh, not only 40 years of his life on this project, but a million dollars on this project. That he made a very large uh, wooden model, uh, and then at great expense, he made a brass model of this uh, brilliant calculator. And Wolfram goes through all of these uh, pages and pages of uh, spilled ink on the subject of making a calculator, these uh, little tiny uh, pinwheels and gears and little paddles, uh, just reams and reams of paper full of this design. But it never worked. I mean, it never worked. It, it, it could do almost nothing. It was just an absolute failure, according to Wolfram. And so he goes to the archives of this mathematician. He can't even find this very expensive brass non-working calculator. So he asks about it. It's in the basement. It's in a plexiglass box, but it's in the basement. No one cares because it just didn't work. Yet the man spent his whole life on this project. And it makes me think of human life without the gospel. We have all kinds of rationale for getting up in the morning and going into the week. All kinds of things are on our list. We keep good track of it. Uh, we have hopes and desires and dreams, aspirations. Uh, we push and push and push. There's, there's so many reasons for life, so many reasons for uh, continuing this endeavor. But if we don't have the gospel, tell me what it amounts to. Well, it amounts to a man spending a million dollars in 40 years making a calculator that doesn't work. That's what human performance gains us. We're trapped in a, in a failed device, but we got to get up Monday. And so we look for a pinwheel that maybe is loose. We look for a switch that maybe hasn't been thrown. And then we go into Tuesday. Maybe it's something else. A spring, maybe. Wednesday, maybe water got in the system. You get the point. Without the gospel. Calculator that never works. What do we have else? We keep tweaking. Remember how I said that in this passage, uh, Paul uh, comes so close to us. Uh, Paul or brings God so close to us. He brings God uh, close enough to us that, that we can actually see his calculator. And his calculator actually works. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And without the gospel, we continue our work on the calculator. But God's calculator works. And Paul, by the Holy Spirit, brings God near Almost gives us a cross-section of God's calculator. A schematic makes the whole thing see-through. He's going to tell us how God's calculator works. And look what that closeness does in Romans 3.21. Uh, the righteousness of God, the work of God, the performance of God has been manifested. How exciting is that? And then in 325, this was to show what? To show God's righteousness, God's working. And in 326, it was to show, but to show what? To show his righteousness at the present time. And in the rest of this passage, God comes close in order to show us his work. How it is that he can be near to us in a way that doesn't condemn us and damn us. Well... Wouldn't you like to know how God's calculator works? And Paul tells us 
beginning in the second half of verse uh, 22 all the way through uh, 26. God comes close to us in a saving way, uh, not a condemning way, only in the work of Jesus. And so in two verses, just two verses, imagine that. God's calculator uh, can be uh, described in two verses. As an aside, uh, Leibniz made uh, reams of designs. And one of, the, one of the comments that Stephen Wolfram makes about his calculator is it was outrageously complex. And look, two verses, 24 and 25, how God's calculator works. Paul tells us how it is that we can come to God with all of our legal failure, with our, our hopelessness, with our great need, and yet not be condemned. And what needs to happen is that God needs to be the one saving us. We are helpless. Again, Paul's told us this over and over again. What needs to happen is that we are to endure the judgment of God. The judge needs to do something, and I can't do it. My family can't do it, stand in my place and take the the judgment that I deserve. My pastor can't do it. My denomination can't do it. Uh, The judge is the only one, and he judges Look what Paul says in 3.26. The judge himself has to be the justifier. If I can't earn the judgment of innocent, well, if I'm going to be innocent at all, he has to do it. The most dangerous judge, the highest judge, the most holy judge, if I can't earn justification before him, he's He's going to have to do it. I don't know how, but he has to. So Paul summarizes everything in Romans 3.26, that God is the one who has to be the justifier. I can't earn it. The judge has to be honest. He has to follow the rule of law, as it were. If he changes the law for me, well, then he ought to change the law for my neighbor and for my neighbor's neighbor and my neighbor's neighbor's neighbor. If he's going to change the law for me, why not change it for everybody? But if he changes it for everybody, then nobody gets judged. And the judge is actually a charlatan. Suddenly there's no judge at all. He has to be a just judge. That's what Paul says in 326. But if I can't earn the judgment of innocent, well, the just judge, he has has to do something or I'm done. I'm done. And what does Paul says? Paul says this. He says that God shows this performance. God being both a judge and the one who justifies. God does all that. It could be no other way. So how does the calculator work? Paul's going to tell us three things about how that calculator works. He's going to describe the, the motivation of God, the means of God, and then finally the instrument of God. Notice what Paul wants us to be very clear about from the beginning. God's motivation is purely grace. I mean, look at 3.23. God pronounces justification, the declaration of innocence, but he does it as a gift. Now, that makes sense from my perspective. I can't earn it. He must do it as a gift. In Romans 4, 4, Paul's actually going to be even more explicit about this. When a person does their job, they get paid. American pragmatism at work. You do your job, you get paid. You don't do your job, you don't get paid. And when you get paid, these are your wages. 
But a person doesn't work for God's judgment of innocence. A person doesn't work for justification. Innocence before God, whatever else it might be, it's not a wage. It's a gift. And so Paul wants to be very clear that the motivation of God's calculator of salvation is grace and only grace. Now, this doesn't fit well, to be sure, but there's a lot more that doesn't fit well. I mean, we know that nothing's free. If they say it's free, it's not free. We know that. We get how marketing works. But Paul says this is free, truly free. And that's God's motivation. The deep well of his mercy and his grace such that he would give us something that our wages don't deserve. Something that's gracious. Well, his means, how does he do this? And uh, Paul says that he does this in uh, two ways uh, here. He talks about the propitiation of Jesus and he talks about the redemption of Jesus. And in short, 325 says that God uh, puts forward Jesus deliberately deliberately sends Jesus forth what a crazy word propitiation but that's that's uh, the what we're getting at God actually is doing something he's putting forward his son as a propitiation it's almost as if the world is a large uh, board game and God actually reaches out his hand and he puts forth his son on that board game of the world All of the things that Jesus does, Paul says here, that God puts him forward for it. And he puts him forward for one reason, to be a propitiation by his blood. Now, this is graphic language. Paul's only mentioned the word blood one other time in Romans, and that's in 3.15 when he's citing Proverbs. And that, that reference to blood is to say that human beings, they're just murderers. They're swift to shed blood. Next time he uses blood, it's here. It's God putting forth his son. Why? To bleed. But the bleeding is very specific. He bleeds, as Paul says, as a propitiation, a rare word in the New Testament, but actually a plentiful word in the Old Testament. And that's likely where Paul gets his image. It's the kind of bleeding that appeases another. It's a, uh, it's a kind of bleeding that is a, a bloody death that satisfies as a punishment. Uh, I think that Martin Luther was exactly right when he looked at all of these Greek Old Testament occurrences of this word, finding many examples, and he goes straight to Exodus chapter 25. And in Exodus chapter 25, we read about the construction of the Ark of the Covenant. And on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, uh, there is a a cap that is covered in gold. Uh, We know it has two uh, cherubim on it facing one another, their their wings coming together. And in Exodus chapter 25, when uh, when God describes this Ark to Moses, uh, God says of the Ark that the very top of it is a mercy seat. Often that's how it's translated. Uh, It is a place of propitiation that's what that top is the Israelites then would uh, sprinkle blood to mark the day of atonement on top of that ark 
And so uh, here we have this, uh, the top of the Ark of the Covenant. It's a place where God comes and he makes his presence uh, known to the people. Uh, But the people can't just come and find God's presence at the Ark. The the people's sins need to be accounted for. So think about this. The, The Ark of the Covenant, it's a box that holds what? It holds the very law of God. But the law of God can't represent us before God. We're sinful. Human performance won't do it. Human compliance to the law won't do it. Something needs to come between that law and my lack of performance of it and the very presence of God. What comes in between? And they sprinkle blood, and they sprinkle blood, and they sprinkle blood. So when Paul says that Jesus is is sent forth by God as a propitiation, uh, he opens the floodgates of that imagery of an atonement. We must have the blood of another. Otherwise... I just, I can't tweak the law. I can't make it work. I can't tweak myself. There's nothing that I can do to earn his favor. And mercifully, God gives to the people uh, in Moses' day the blood of a sacrifice that they sprinkle on top of that mercy seat. And Paul says, Jesus is that mercy seat. Jesus is that place where the, sinner, where the sinner receives not a judgment of guilt, but a judgment of innocence. You see, God comes close to us in a saving way only in the work of Jesus. I'll say just a little bit more, but let's move on. This image of propitiation, I think, is the dominant one here. But there's another picture of how God's calculator works, uh, not merely by propitiation. Uh, Jesus is not only the blood of atonement. He's also the redemption price. You see uh, the word redemption in our passage. And to redeem someone is to purchase them out of their situation. A, A prisoner or a slave could be released so long as someone is there to pay the ransom. And so Jesus then is the atoning blood, but he's also the ransom price of redemption. What are we to make of this? Well, we as Christians come under the protection of an unblemished sacrifice. Jesus Christ is the perfect law keeper, and so the law presents no problem to him. But he's also uh, killed, he bleeds, and he bleeds because he's taken upon himself the punishment of condemnation that we deserve and our inability to keep the law. And in the same way, uh, Jesus is the payment for us. He he, uh, is the very price that delivers us out of the bondage, not merely of the law, but out of the bondage of law's curse because we're lawbreakers. We're commanded to keep it. We failed in every way. He's the propitiation, the blood of atonement. He is the, redeem, uh, the redemption price, the price of ransom. I want to honestly say that these images, they come very fast in Paul. Two verses, and there's a sense in which there's brutality in it. Someone has to bleed. There's no way around it. Someone has to bleed. There's a brutality here. But there's also a great sadness here that we're imprisoned under the curse of the law, not by happenstance, but because we deserve it. There's no hidden evidence that will be produced to prove our innocence. We deserve our guilt. 
And so there's a brutality in the propitiation of Jesus, and there's a sadness in the redemption price that Jesus has to pay. There's deep theology here, but at the same time, I want you to think about this. This is clear enough for children to understand. It's clear enough for children to understand. We are lawbreakers and sinners. We cannot represent ourselves before God. But God can't water himself down so that it becomes easy to stand before him. What will happen? Someone else has to represent us before God. And that includes not only being a perfect lawkeeper, but it also includes paying for my own law-breaking. Someone has to come in between to live a perfect life and to die the penalty that I deserve. This makes sense to a child. And the same thing with the redemption price. I'm someone who is trapped under this dark shadow called law-breaking. I, I, I can't save myself. I can't tweak the calculator to make it work. It's never going to work. I need someone to deliver me out from underneath the weight of this curse of law-breaking. I need someone to pay a price. I've put myself here. I need a ransom price paid fully or I live under this curse forever. Deep theology or theology a child could understand. God comes close to us in a saving way only through the work of Jesus. His motivation is by grace. His means is by propitiation and redemption. And his instrument is faith. If God's declaration of innocence cannot be earned, then what? I can do nothing. God reveals himself in divine creation. Paul has said that in chapter 1. He reveals himself in my own humanness. Uh, Paul has said this in uh, Romans chapter 2. God is doing all the heavy lifting, making himself uh, known in so many different ways. A creation, my conscience, uh, my, do- my desires, my longings, my hopes, my uh, creativity. Uh, God's making himself known uh, all over the place. And he makes me aware of my finitude, of my lostness, of my need. And yet God refuses to bend He refuses to change the shape of his justice or his demands. He refuses to uh, compromise with me so that uh, I can be uh, saved even though uh, I have a great deal of inability because God is willing to work with me. He refuses to cut corners for me. He refuses to give man a break. I'm willing, perfectly willing to come to the negotiation table would love to see what God has to offer. I tell him, God, let's work something out. Let's let's make a deal. Let's both of us cut each other a little slack. But he refuses. He makes himself known. He makes my lostness known. And he refuses to negotiate. (laughs) So now what? Well, I get up Monday morning and I keep tweaking the calculator. And I'm saying to you this morning to stop. To stop. You may not have uh, another calculator uh, at hand to jump into and work with. You may not know uh, exactly what it means uh, to stop trying harder. 
You may not know uh, what it means to just give up, but that's what I'm asking you to do. Because what Paul is saying to us here is he's saying that there is a means of salvation, but God owns that means of salvation. And what I'm asking you to do, and what Paul is asking us to do, is to allow the gospel that he is describing to address us. Allow the gospel that he is describing right here this morning to address you. Consider just for a moment that your calculator is not working as well as you'd like it to. Consider for a moment that you're never going to make it work as well as you'd like it to. Consider for a moment that left to your own devices or your own device making, you're not going to make very much progress between now and when you die. Consider that for a moment. Set your calculator to the side and allow this picture of the gospel calculator to address you. One theologian that I like puts this uh, rather lavishly. He says this. He says that it, it's the divine will itself, the very uh, will of God himself through the gospel to address himself to your will, to your heart, to your innermost essence. Consider that that is God's desire. He would not desire that any should perish. His desire is to express his divine will through the gospel to your will and heart and your innermost essence. And the theologian goes on. If you allow this, if you allow God to address your innermost calculator, your very inner essence, God will produce the faith which rests not in your calculator, but in his calculator. Do you know that the Bible says over and over again that faith is a gift from God? And this theologian, Herman Bovink, uh, he says, if you allow uh, God's will, his gospel, to penetrate your innermost false gospel, he will produce there the faith which rests in his divine will, a faith that builds on his divine will. A faith that puts its trust in his divine will. And that will not fail you in any of your perils, any of your troubles, even in the hour of death. And so what Paul is asking us, and he's going to continue asking us, is he's, he's going to ask us to stop trying harder, to set aside our calculator, and to consider for a moment that it is God's will, it is God's will to address your calculator, show you that it doesn't work, and give you a better calculator. This is what Paul means when he says that the instrument of the gospel is faith. Stop trying harder. The calculator will never work. And in two verses, Paul shows you a calculator that does. Now, which will you trust? God comes close to us in a saving way only in the work of another, in the work of Jesus. Would you pray with me?
Our Father, we thank you for your wisdom in saving us as you see fit in a way that is coherent, in a way that is logically consistent with who you are, in a way that is brutally honest with who we are. We thank you, Father. We thank you, Father, for saving us in the work of Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.